Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Ray Wang, uh, co-founder of The Grand, formerly of uh, CEO of Dorman Fund with First Round Capital, and Bailey Richardson, uh, co-founder of uh, People and & Company and author of Get Together. Bailey, uh, Ray, well, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so Woo-hoo. much for having us, Eric. Thanks for having us. Awesome. Ray, why don't you uh, describe what the grand is and what your sort of unique insight you had uh, around community building that uh, enabled you to start it and build it in a, in a different way? Yeah, absolutely. So the Grand is a place where you go to talk to other people who have been there before. Um, that is the premise, is to have meaningful conversations with people with rich life experiences so you can all learn together. What we really believe in is that if we all open up and really talk about what's going on, um, then we can all learn from each other and build deeper, more human connections. So the Grand really um, started because uh, Anita and I, both growing up as first generation immigrants, in the U.S., realized that we had a totally different context than the environment that our parents grew up in, right? So as a curious kid, I would always go up to my parents and ask them kind of these big questions. And they were so loving and supportive, but they weren't really able to kind of help me out with it because they've never been there before, right? So I'd be like, you know, mom and dad, what's it like to date someone from a different race? And they were like, we don't know. We've never done that before. (laughs) Or what's it like to go to college in the States? Same thing. Or, you know, how do I think about making big career transitions? in my life. Uh, So because of that, I tried to sort of like Google the answers, but could never really find good content. Um, And then I just ended up trying to find people, uh, friends of friends of friends who kind of had been there before, and I would gather together and I would ask them about it. And those were the conversations that I found really helpful. And that was also a lot of the work that Anita and I did at First Round was helping entrepreneurs learn from other founders who had been there before in these small group conversations. And then that got us uh, thinking, you know, where do people go to find answers and perspectives around the big questions in their personal lives? And what would it look like if we got people together to be able to have these meaningful conversations about all of the questions that keep us up at night, right? Everything from do I have kids or not, to how do I think about um, retirement? in the future to, you know, how do I think about improving my relationship with my parents and deepening that when I live so far away from them. Totally. So, so the insights there are uh, the power of vulnerability, but also uh, to, to build community, but also that people who've been there before, who've lived on this planet longer, have, uh, have a lot to offer and are underutilized. Exactly. Yeah. It's the, the insight there is, you know, we all have these amazing uh, life experiences, but nobody knows about them because we don't talk about them from each other. Right. So what if we, we could help surface all of these experiences and help people learn from each other? Totally. Yeah. I, I have this sort of broader thesis of if there's valuable information in people's heads or people's hearts yeah. or, or wherever it, it will become on the internet or become distributed at, at some, at some point. Uh, I want to go d- deeper there, but, but first, Bailey, why don't you introduce the work you do at, at People and Company a bit? What, what do you sort of, um, and the way I'll ask is, what do you think is your and your team's sort of unique contribution to uh, the community uh, literature ethos, or what sort of unique perspective um, and contribution do you think y- y'all bring? Yeah, I think from my experience 
I, I was one of the first five to 10 employees at Instagram and I worked on the community team there and my two business partners had similar experiences of having a huge collaborative group of people spread something all around the world. So feeling like you were really partners with people using a platform or growing a platform. And I remember at the time, Googling around online, trying to look for information from another organization that had been through something like what we were going through. And all I could find was like Harley Davidson from 1993 and like CrossFit. And I just felt like there was a lot of information out in the world about the why of community building, like why humans need each other, like why there's, uh, what's the, what are the changes that are going on in our demographics and in our society that are affecting communities? But I really needed more how, like, tell me what's step one, what's step two, what questions should I be asking myself? What's the order of operations here? And so we've been doing tons of research over the last three years. We've been doing client work. Uh, We run a podcast and we just published a book from all the things that we've learned of really the nine steps of how to build a community, where you start, um, what you do next. And our, our big overarching thesis, which I think is not new, but perhaps just a framing of something that most people who have built a community already know, is a community is built with other people, not for them. And I get really excited about thinking about that's how that's possible now because we have, frankly, the internet. The internet is a big, powerful tool. It does lots of good. It probably does lots of bad, but it allows people to take chapter-based organizations, to take event templates and repeat those all around the world. That is the piece that I think that we're really interested in is just seeing how there can be these very localized, very personal experiences of something underneath an umbrella that's quite larger, uh, quite a lot larger. So seeing how people are building groups today with the internet and the ability to share resources across sort of these nodes in the network is something that I'm really, really interested in in today's world. Totally. We, we uh, At Product Hunt, we called it build in public. So definitely identify mm, with- I love that. Yeah, with. absolutely. Um, and in your client work, what do you f- find is, is the most common thing that, that you work for a type of client? Are you you're working with businesses who don't have communities to think about their community strategy or how do you scope out uh, your, your client work? Yeah, probably the the wrong way, which is I want to use this skill set to try to solve as many strange problems as I possibly can. So the weirder and more diverse our client our client group is, the better. I mean, we've worked with like dog walkers. We've worked with VCs in Asia. We've worked with, you know, big athletic brands. Like I feel like we've kind of tried to do all sorts of different types of companies. Um, But the number one thing that we see across the board, no matter who you are, is people just really lack a sense of clarity around how they're using the word community. Like it's become sort of this uh, euphemistic term for like all of our customers or our audience base. Um, and people don't spe- use, use it with specificity, which kind of takes away all of its power. <laughs> um, so that piece of really defining who they're talking about uh, is, is a piece that we work really hard on. And then just clarity around the steps that it takes to actually invest in one and what this does do for your business and what it doesn't do for your business. So pretty much universally, I feel like people have this sense of, ooh, a, an organic grassroots enthusiastic community would be a great thing to have. But people don't seem to have a really clear sense of how to get there. And so 
that's what we really do is we force people to more clarity and then we coach them along the way as they're actually like executing the work. Um, so we're sort of alongside them tweaking different things that they're releasing and, and looking at how they've done. Yeah. It, it, community is, is a term like love that has like, you know, 50 mm-hmm. different meanings and used in all, all these different contexts and sometimes is for the sake of it itself and sometimes is used in commercial ways and, is, you know, you know, used in service of, some, of something else. So with that, I'm curious, how do we sort of, let's, let's define a, maybe a, a few ways of thinking about community and m- maybe it's easier to define in contrast to think like, what's the difference between a community and a network? Um, or, or when does a community become a network or how, how should we think about, or, or another, ver- like what's the difference between a community and a cult? <laughs> um, you know, just because you mentioned CrossFit earlier, how would you take a stab at, at that question? I can start with the cult one. I think that one's fairly straightforward. Um, but you know, you guys should call me out if I'm full of shit. From from what I'm understanding, the definition of a cult is there's usually one extremely charismatic leader with some very strong visions. And from my point of view, one of the things that's the most interesting about a community model is we have so many hierarchical sort of pyramid structures in the our society and how we work and how we interact. And I think a community is a fairly non-hierarchical structure when it's functioning, in my opinion, best. There's a lot of breaking up of roles and responsibility and an effective sort of distribution of contributions and participation. So I think that that difference of there's not one godlike figure who is steering the entire ship, in my point of view, that that's a very important difference between what I say is like really true, beautiful communities and and cults. And I think a really cool thing that I've seen with all the people we've had on our podcast, some of which are running companies, some of whom are starting queer, queer soup nights. Um, there's a really neat tend- tendency, I think, in our age group for people to think in a really radical way about uh, leadership and about giving other people power and control and kind of not trying to just be the king of the castle. And I just feel like the sense of urgency within our age group to help make things be more distributed amongst the group. And I get really excited about that. So the cult, the cult question, I would, I would, that's how I would answer it, but feel free to jump in and add any other flavor there. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 or, 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 or jump in. How do we think about communities versus networks? Of course, there's a lot of uh, intersection and overlap, but how do we think about totally. that? Totally. Uh, so the way that I define community, it's a group of people who come together with shared beliefs, values, and or goals, right? So um, that to me is sort of the core definition of a community. And I think like Billy said, the way that it differs from a network is that everyone's all in it together and there's a sense of mutuality or reciprocity within the community, right? They're all actively together, working together towards that common mission. And there isn't one group uh, or leader who's in charge of organizing it. And that's the difference between a network. So I think a lot of um, a lot of VC people say like, oh, look at our portfolio. It's such an amazing community. They come and get together all the time. But in my mind, that's not really a true community because usually it's still, you know, someone on the uh, VC firm's platform team who's hosting the dinners at the VC company's office or a retreat there, right? So there's still kind of one central node where that network gathers around. And without that person kind of manning the operations, it's likely that that portfolio wouldn't be coming together anymore. Whereas I think a true community is distributed and it functions without that one unit or that one leader, and it will still continue to thrive. So 
You know, a better example of that is founder support groups that come together really actively and maybe they meet up in people's homes or people's living rooms for these monthly conversations and talk about how they can all support each other rather than the more formal definition of a network where it gathers in an office with an employee assigned to kind of really stoke that. Also, I wonder if a community has more of an identity tied to it that networks do. Networks seem more loose, weak tie, you know, come in and out as you please where communities see more, you know, commitment based more, Hey, I'm, I am a part of this. I identify as this, I, I share, I share values. Does that resonate? Yeah. I, I define very similarly to you, Ray, what a community is. And we say there are people who keep coming together over what they care about. And I think there's something about like the emotional switch getting flicked on with a community that it's like you're, you're stuck to that participation. It hits on something that's personal to you, something that you've gone through that's been difficult, some hobby that you're really into, but there's a sense of active participation that's, I think in a network, you can have more passive participation or like you said, sort of like light connections between people. But yeah, I think the identity piece is tied to that sense of like, I care about this like this lights my fire <laughs> and that like, it's something that you believe is a part of, of who you are and why, what, what makes you, you in the world often. Yeah. And let's talk about community in, in a, in a business context, Bailey. So when I'm curious, when it makes sense for businesses to think about adopting community versus, versus not like you're a hedge fund, you don't need a community or, or, or mm. like, you know, when, when does it make sense? Hey, actually this isn't going to drive business metrics for you. Do something else. Yeah. It's a, it's, I find that often I'm surprised by, I keep thinking, oh, there must be like a really, really clear line in terms of like what industry you're in that you should or shouldn't consider this. And then I keep thinking about instant pot, which is like a crock pot. And, you know, I would never have guessed that there would be a community around a crockpot company based in Ottawa, but there's all these potheads who like share recipes with each other and knit sweaters for their crock pot. And so I I sometimes like feel like I keep having to check myself that often if your business has something that you care about, the internet sort of reveals that like there might be other people who are also charged up on it. And so I I I do think that there's a couple of groups where I, I'm less more like this this is the type of person who should do this. And I'm actually more on this is the type of person who should not do this or type of organization, excuse me, that should not do this. And for me, it really comes down to like, if you're the type of company that's really uncomfortable with giving up control, if you don't have that in your DNA, and if you don't trust your users or customers, you should not be investing in a community strategy. Um, So for example, one of my friends works at Chanel. She read my book. And she was like, yeah, it was really interesting. Chanel's not going to invest in a community. And I was like, yeah, I get that. You know, the value of Chanel is distance. It's mystique. It's inaccessibility. They are not looking for people to come in and leave their fingerprints on Chanel. A platform company on the internet wants people to come in and participate and voice themselves and express themselves. Like Chanel does not want that. And so I think that 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 is more like of the biggest piece. There are people that are reinventing the way that people can engage with, I think, almost any type of business or industry. But if you ultimately like are not well, 
you're not comfortable with, or you don't feel like your product is suited towards people having like access and breaking off a little piece of your brand and expressing it themselves, then I don't think a community is the investment for you. Yeah. Let me rephrase the question a little bit uh, to add on it. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a venture capitalist. We, we have a bunch of companies and pe- because I was at Product Hunt, people ask, hey, uh, and Product Hunt was a sort of, uh, you know, started from a community and that was its, that was its business. Whereas, you know, a lot of enterprise companies will come to me and say, hey, we run this legal tech startup or we um, have this MarTech startup and we're thinking about whether we should, you know, sort of bolt on a community. And the question we have is, will it drive our bottom line? Is, is your answer usually yes, if you do it well, or how, how do like, how do people get confident that it will, you know, increase their MRR, ARR? Yeah. Or is that the wrong no, no, I think it's a great question. It's something that we definitely spend a lot of time with on each, with each client. And I think there's a couple of different kind of common answers that we feel like we keep coming up with, which is one is maybe a certain type of user or customer is more valuable than the others. Uh, so for example, if you are running a marketplace business, it might be valuable to have people who are really excellent at listing and selling products that you know well. That's like the Airbnb host example, or maybe the eBay community back in the day, because they can educate the whole platform. They like raise the quality bar for anyone who comes on. There's something reliable that they can trust. They can also educate other people who are selling, hosting, listing. So I think there's sort of like, is there a type of user that we need more of, a type of customer that we need more of to affect the whole network overall or the whole system overall? Um, That's something that we see a lot. And I think another piece is too, there are some companies where if they get more people in the world to be passionate about an activity or a product, it helps that whole, it's like rising tides raise all ships. Totally. Going back to community versus network for a second, what, we talked about LinkedIn as kind of a network. We wouldn't talk about it as a community, although maybe we talk about it having sub-communities that form naturally, whereas product and I think we talk more about as a community than a network. Why is that? Do you think there's something, is it structural? Is it more tone, vibe? I think in some ways, platforms, what community does by working with people who are sort of leaders or raising up voices, differentiating contributions, it creates a culture. And I'm not a massively deep user of either LinkedIn or Product Hunt. And even even I can tell that there's a level of expressiveness and contribution that happens within Product Hunt that feels like you guys have created a culture. And I think some of that also comes from the leadership and the way that you guys participated in the platform. But there's just more like sense of individual expression. And that, that I guess, stands out for me is just this feeling like in some ways you've differentiated the contributions and the behaviors that you want to see more of from like a values point of view instead of just like a rote gener- generic business point of view. There's like some kind of sense of this is this is what good looks like within this context. And I feel like LinkedIn is much more of sort of, I'm sure there's some sense of like the culture of LinkedIn, uh, but it doesn't feel as clear to me or as obvious to me. There's less playfulness. There's less, less expressiveness to it. So that that sort of stands out to me is that you guys, 
I always felt like Product Hunt had more of a point of view. And in a weird way, like some things that have a point of view somehow allow for their user base to be more expressive versus the opposite sometimes. So, I mean, that stands out to me, but I'm sure both of you have points of view around it that could to take mine, could take, go further than, than me as well. No, I agree with your point of view. And I would say the difference there is the way that it's built, right? And it they're built with different mindsets. And this goes back to the point that you made earlier around building for versus building with. The way that LinkedIn is built is they have product managers who, you know, see um, their users as a stakeholder in their community. And they'll go out there, you know, and they'll do a lot of research with their users and they'll get to understand them. But the, at the end of the day, they see their users as someone that they're serving, and they are the ones who are working with engineers and designers to build and release the new features and releasing that and sharing it with their um, ultimate users. Whereas I think Product Hunt, from the very beginning, you know, you guys had this ethos of building in public, so it was really building with your community. And when it was early and just you and Ryan and Nathan and kind of all the scrappy people, you invited your community to come in and collaborate with you, and that has really contributed to the mindset and the growth of Product Hunt and what differentiates it from just being a network. It's the hard road though, right? You know, why why did you guys pick that road? What 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 do you think? Uh, was it just the, your personalities and what made sense to you? Or do you feel like it was strategic? Was it both? I'm curious. I think it was more organic, uh, you know, uh, and really an outgrowth of Ryan's sort of early sort of explorations. It was originally a side project, him and his, uh, his friends, and uh, then sort of grew out from there. And then it was sort of doubled down on, on, on what's working um, until, you know, there were sort of, you know, product never reached, I think this is an interesting segue, it never reached sort of the scale of, you know, uh, Twitter or Facebook or Instagram where you worked, obviously not even close. And so the question is when things get that big, you know, do they have to uh, alter and become more neutral? And so I'm, I'm curious, because you were, you know, one of the earliest people at Instagram, did it start out as more community than turn out, turn into a network? Or was the point of view always the same throughout? Like, how do communities change as they, as they evolve? Yeah. Well, yeah. I do, th- I do think communities, you usually have to define this. It's for this group of people and not this group of people. And when you're reaching venture scale, when you're reaching Instagram scale, Facebook scale, they build for everyone, you know, that's, that's the use case. Like they're probably one of the very few types of businesses on the planet that say anyone on the planet is a possible user in some sense, or like anyone with an internet connection. Um, so I think when you get to that level of just trying to get literally every single person on the planet on your website, you do make, I think, uh, trade-offs with, what you stand for, or like, if you want to have a certain type of culture, I think with Instagram, the way I describe it is when I first started working there, it felt like going to like the Met Museum or something where you would walk around and like see interesting things that you otherwise couldn't have seen. And it was through the eyes of other people and through their cameras. And it was a sense of discovery. And now I feel like it's just very much dictated by, in fact, the app has changed. It's very much dictated by the advertising model. And when we first started out, we could really prioritize user experience of what it felt like to connect and share with other people. And then when you introduce a business model that's in some ways at odds with that, it changed the structure of the app. It changed the design. It changed the user experience. And it's a little bit more like a shopping mall now. Like things are being sold to us and we're all kind of participating and also selling ourselves to each other. So I feel like there was this massive cultural shift 
of being a place where you felt like you were discovering the world through other people to a place where you're just kind of like selling and being sold to. And I think a lot of that comes down to probably more than uh, the first point I made of you can only build for, you know, communities have a clear who, um, but more to just like the straight shift in design, like the product has, has really changed. And, you know, it's easy for me to remember because when I was there, we had like really bad filters and just photos and no video and no stories. And I remember all the vintages of it because they're so personal to me, but it's changed just massively in terms of how it functions. It's, it's just been kind of granular for all of us as users. So we might forget in some ways. The, you know, it is interesting because community size is very interesting. You know, I, I sort of, there's this tendency to, I think that the internet, you know, allows you to find your niche and that gets increasingly atomized. So it's not just like, you know, Latino men, it's Latino men who like basketball on Thursdays, you know, from in this league, like it, it, you just keep finding subgroups and subgroups, subgroups. At the same time, we're also congealing and centralizing on these platforms and people love being part of, you know, mass movements. <laughs> um, and so it's how do you think about these sort of increasing opposite trends, right? Increasing atomization, increasing, like finding your, you know, people who share even more and more and more interest than you, but also, you know, wanting to be part of something bigger, yeah. It's a big question. Let me think yeah. about it for a second. <laughs> yeah, I think I suppose I think that both of them reflect the same need, which is a desire to feel belonging. And we need that on like a local level and we need it on like a semi-national level. But I'm not sure that the internet is so much providing that mass sense of unity. You know, I think it's actually made us in its current iteration feel quite violent towards each other. And I, I, I'm like a huge Marshall McLuhan fan. And he just talked about how the further we get away from connecting to each other in our own physical bodies, the more like violent we're going to be towards each other. I think there's something about that loss of grounding of just standing face to face with someone else that makes you really skeptical of other people and, and makes you, you know, we're really good to each other one-on-one. We're really bad to each other at scale one to many. So I, I think in general, the trend is, is atomization in my opinion, even these things like me too, which I think are so powerful still feel like extremely adversarial, but I'm, I'm curious about things, wondering if there are topics that the internet actually does unify us around really, really well. This sounds like very anti-intellectual and very light, but I'm just like pets in the internet, like TikTok, you just open that thing and like humor and fun and playfulness and kindness, that stuff does show up actually. Like, and it it shows up in a way that makes all of us feel soothed and feel quite good. And so I think there are opportunities for these more soothing experiences to show up in our platforms and show up in our content online. But I would say the last, you know, five years, the trend has felt quite atomizing and probably has to do with us all spending a lot of time primarily in areas that are, are algorithmic in terms of the content that we see. But yeah, that's, that's my best form of an answer. I just wanted to point out, um, you know, sort of uh, two different types of community frameworks um, that I think would be important to kind of the audience here. So Eric, you know, what you described earlier is like 
I am a Latino man who likes basketball and I want to play that on Thursday nights. I think that's one type of community and um, that's known as a bonding community, right? So it's people with shared interests who are coming together to do that thing repeatedly and their sense of identity connects them and it bonds them together. And it creates that sort of more uh, more sticky community, but I think it can also create uh, isolation and silos if that's the only type of community activity that your community is fostering, right? And I think what's really important to keep in mind is while the internet does allow for people to bond um, across these community interests, there's also an amazing opportunity for the internet to be able to bridge people and showcase kind of a diversity of viewpoints and a diversity of perspectives and opinions and allow people who would usually never come and gather together to be able to have really rich conversations and pointed discussions and be able to showcase that diversity of thought and viewpoint. And that's really what we're trying to do with the grant. It's about, you know, bringing people together across all generations, across all backgrounds to talk about the fundamental questions that make us human. So in that way, I think it can actually create, you know, sort of more variety and more connection across groups. Well, it is interesting. I'm curious to get your perspective on this because you know there's uh diversity of backgrounds and, and and you know experience skill you know a bunch of things you just mentioned but there is some unity on i guess core values maybe mm-hmm. uh, is how do you think like do you think communities that have different values <laughs> could also work like it, i'm just curious how you think about you know the opposite of diversity is unity or, or would you accept that and community is is all about unity right or there's little unity in the word so how do you think about those tensions of of there are other different kinds of diversity that work better or how do you think about that? Yeah. So I think you can have different contexts and backgrounds, um, but your value is the same. So for us is, you know, you might be of different ages of races and you might come from different places, but you're all energized by meaningful conversation and you all want to learn through discussion. Right. And that's what really unites everyone in the grand together. Um, and that's a core value. And we always introduce our four guiding principles to kind of set the ground for how people operate within a discussion. So regardless of where they come from, they realize, okay, this is the mode and these are the rules and these are the principles by which I'm going to abide by. And those are things like vulnerability is a superpower and that we listen and we show up and we respect all these opinions, right? And that creates, I think, this fabric of um, a really constructive conversation rather than this is what I believe versus what you believe. It's more like we're sitting around the table together versus on different sides of the table. Yeah, so it, it is interesting. I mean, just to sort of close the loop on the um, the big versus small thing. Like, if the interesting thing about our platforms, yeah, they don't have points of view, and you know, some people consider that a positive. I like, if, you know, if Zuck had a point of view, like you'd be calling him King Zuck, you know, like it would be you know cult figure in, in that definition, and that, that's what old mass communities were, right? Like religions, <laughs> uh, in, in sort of the the technical definition we we gave earlier, and so. Yeah, it is interesting how there's and there's this sort of tension in society right now. Should these platforms have have point of view, have editorial, have clear values, or should they sort of get out the way and say, hey, you know, it should be more community, bottoms up, like you figure it out. Do you have a point of view on that? <laughs> I guess I often think that I'm not sure one size should fit all for our social interactions. It doesn't seem to make sense to me that it's a winner take all game. And I think in reality, it's not, you know, people aren't just using Facebook, they're communicating in a bunch of different ways. But I often think about Snapchat 
as an interesting example of a platform that I think had scalable potential and also had a point of view. I really felt like they brought a lot more editorial and humor. I mean, they were the ones that introduced these like stickers on people's faces and all of these things that I actually think were quite sort of like not utilitarian. Like Facebook was very utilitarian for a long time. You know, we're the phone company. And I was always just very impressed by Snapchat's ability to kind of deliver on humor. I think in many ways they like offered humor to people. And that's a really foundational human need to connect to other each other in a playful way. And they did it in an intimate way. And who knows, you know, we're not living in the world where Snapchat is, is growing at the rate that it once was. Um, but I think some of that has to do more with competition than it has to do with just quality of the product. Um, so I, I, I tend to think that my, my bet is that the future will not look like our social platforms have no point of view. Every other industry that is a consumer, most consumer facing products have values. They have points of view. They have ways of expressing themselves that kind of communicate who they are to the world. And I think Silicon Valley has had pretty mediocre efforts at, at branding and marketing itself for most of its history. And I think too, there we're moving into this phase where the technology is easier and easier to build and the distribution, I think, is getting harder. And a lot of technologists lean into this desire to create a wedge based on some offering that they have, some tool that they have. But that's not speaking the language of regular people. Like values and emotions are what activate a lot of people. So I just have this hunch that in the future, there may be more wedges that look like values promises. And there may be more wedges that look like points of view that open people up to using a product, at least the early wave. But I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think still feels like could go, like I could be totally wrong here, but I do think there's a space for people having firmer values and more personality that resonates with people. And I think, Ray, I was thinking as you were speaking, one thing that I think connects people who are very diverse and very different uh, in a community is a shared question that they want to answer or a shared action that they want to take. And I think a, what a technology product needs to do is like solve, solve something that is really shared across a group of people. Like I think Instagram in the beginning was really about people being more creative, slightly more creative now that we all have cameras on us. And that was something that is an instinct that a lot of people have a kernel of inside of them. And I think continuing to solve for like those kind of core desires, needs, aspirations that people have and, and being willing to be, have personality within that lane seems like a, a way that you can still bring lots of different people together if you just sort of like stand for the value that you're offering people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that is what I think is the main challenge with Facebook right now is I don't know. I don't think I can articulate what Facebook stands for. Um, I don't think most people know. I don't know if Facebook can articulate what Facebook stands for. And I think that's why they're in a little bit of this mess right now. Um, I think if Facebook was really clear 
uh, when they first started or even more recently and said, you know, Facebook stands for freedom of speech. And we are a place for people to gather and have conversations. And our number one tenant is freedom of speech. And that is what we're always going to uphold. Then that makes sense. And it tells people how they can operate on Facebook and what that community means to them. Right. But I think Facebook has been kind of wavering back and forth and they keep on sort of publishing new guidelines and new principles and you know new statements and new letters um, in terms of what they're trying to do and right now I think that just created a lot of confusion and that's why they're this mess because people don't know what Facebook is all about right now and it seems like they keep on switching it up so I think people are reacting and saying, this isn't the reason why I joined Facebook. This behavior seems out of character and not in line with my values anymore, which is why I think people are now deleting Facebook and not using it and really calling attention to Mark and the team there to say, be clear about what this platform is all about and what this community stands for. Yeah, I think with Facebook, the thing that they actually stand for is they are the best product in modern history to connect businesses to people. Like they have crushed that. They're absolutely dominant in that field. They will net, they never talk externally in that way, but that is the really true reality of what they're extremely good at and the value that they offer. It's just that they always talk about it as sort of, you know, this other lane of we're just purely about social connections, but the whole business engine is driven by something else. And I I actually kind of wish that they would just be more clear about that, you know, like about what they're really, really good at and what the business model is, because the split of always trying to speak about this sort of like secondary piece, which ultimately doesn't feed their revenue and like defending these things like in principle, when in reality, their business model all comes from connecting businesses to people, not people to people creates this like really difficult tension and everything that they say in the space of like a purely social value system they have doesn't have checks and balances within their business model. So I just am always sort of like, I wish you guys would be a little more frank, which is like, you're the best thing that's ever existed for connecting businesses of all sorts, small businesses, large businesses, whatever to individuals. And like that to me is like the piece that, feels like the thing they always actually just like avoid going out there with. And I get why, but it's the most honest thing they could say. Yeah. In a sense, there's, um, you know, your business model is, is who you are. You know, a lot of communities bond over sort of in-group, out-group dynamics, some sort of explicitly, uh, you know, against a certain thing or a certain behavior or a certain value. Some, you know, for a certain value sort of implies that they're, you know, against a certain thing. So how do you have sort of the benefits is of tribalism without the neg- negativities of tri- we're sort of in an cre- increasing polarized world, which means probably the most community communities that's ever that's ever, you know it's ever happened that the internet has enabled. H- how do you think we get the good without the sort of outgrouping and sort of adversarials? Sure. I think this comes back to um, what we talked about earlier in terms of bonding versus bridging, right? So I think one important thing to note there is it's not that communities are either bonding or bridging. Most communities have a little bit of both, right? So for example, um, you know, Reddit is a community that allows people to come together and talk about very niche specific interests, but you can also explore other forums and hear, you know, lots of different points of views on other topics from other people that you might 
might not be able to have conversations with on the internet, right? That's an example of how you do both. And I think it's really important to, to have, even if you're a bonding community, to have ways where you can connect your members um, to the outside world and be more out we're looking and think about, you know, why does your community show up and what's its relationship to the world? Um, and how do you come together to talk about that? Um, and not have it just be focused on, you know, a purely bonding community and make it more about us versus everyone else, right? That's when um, I think really trouble strikes. Like I think in the book, Bailey, you guys talk about the KKK as being a really great example of what a bonding community looks like. But because they have, you know, nothing that bridges them to the outside world, it's become this terrible, very homogenous, you know, very exclusive community that is only about promoting themselves and looking inwards rather than reflecting outwards. Yeah, I think exactly what you said, Ray. And also, this is one circumstance that I think really comes down to leadership. And I don't necessarily mean just one leader setting the tone. I think we've seen really effective groups who are really good at welcoming and encouraging diversity who maybe have a couple different types of leaders or people who have different skin colors, people who have different gender identities. And it's on the people at sort of that layer of leadership within a community to be, I think, pretty explicit about this stuff. It's not something that you can be passive about and like magically hope that we form diverse communities. I think it has to be called out um, and protected. And I think this space is something that I feel like also really excited about, to be totally honest. I think we're having open conversations about race, gender identity, like all of these things that in a way that I have never experienced in my lifetime. And it needs to be spoken about. It needs to be explicit in terms of who's invited, who you want there, what your hope is for the community. And it needs to be talked about in an evolving way within the group. I think in some senses, communities are very like democratic spaces. And I mean that in the sense of like, you have to have the hard conversations. There's not one person designing everything. And like, it's a seamless experience as you go. And as you change, it's, it's, you'll probably hear feedback if you're someone who started a group from people, if they don't feel well represented or they don't feel welcome. And I think a commitment to a more collaborative way of building groups means that you're willing to have those conversations and willing to change and evolve as your group gets larger. But one of the, the groups that we talk about in our book is a, non, a non-tech example. It's like the very first story we tell about this run club that started up in Washington Heights, which is like 190th Street, like way up north of Central Park. And it's in a community where people don't run. Like there's not many public spaces, not many parks, and there's a lot of sort of fast food joints and lots of like unhealthy food and not a lot of spaces for people to be active. And this guy named Hector Espinal started running by himself every Monday and begged his friends to join him. And we just went back to Rue Crew a few months ago on their anniversary. They've been doing Rue Crew for six years. They've never missed a Monday. There were 200 people running through the street all together. And I mean, there were people, there were like 64-year-old Dominican grandmothers. There were, you know, young, like female rappers, like the, the, the diversity in that space. It, I've never been in a place that diverse before. 
And it's really clear that everyone is welcome. And it is really clear that you could be a gentrifier in that neighborhood and they're welcoming you. And they make that so clear in the photos that they post. They make that so clear in their language. And they set the tone immediately when you show up. Anyone who shows up who's new, they walk up, someone shakes your hand, pats you on the back. So I think in some ways, the best thing we can do is be so clear that diversity is a point of pride and it's something that we protect and it's something that we are going to continue to commit to grow grow on. But these things have to be explicit and they have to be talked about. There's no sort of like simple solution for these. They're like beliefs, they're, they're ideals that we all have to work towards and sort of fight our way towards. And it takes leadership in some senses to do that. Totally. I, I want to pick up a, on a different part of that story you just mentioned, which was uh, length of, of, of communities. I sort of have this, you know, theory of, of, of conferences where conferences sort of like nightclubs where it starts with sort of a, a cool kid demographic. And then when everyone else comes, the cool kids go somewhere else. <laughs> and it just keeps being this sort of red queen, like evolutionary sort of transition. And I'm, I'm curious how you think about sort of the length of communities and if it's natural for uh, communities to say, hey, we achieved our, <laughs> we, we achieved our goals. We all got close to each other. And now it's time to find the next thing. Or like what's sort of the natural evolution of, 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 of communities and should people retire communities or is it always just keep going bigger? Yeah. Um, One of the people that we interviewed for the book is this girl named Carly Ayers, who's an amazing designer, like went to RISD's, like on the board of AIGA. She's like super young, she's crushing it. And she started this Slack group called Hundreds Under 100 for uh, a bunch of designers. And I was talking to Carly about this Slack group and she had this great quote that was like, I think everything should radically change every three years. And like, I'll probably shut this down in three years. And it's still up. And I was like, why is it still up? And I think it's because she's like allowed for it to radically change. Like she's trying to completely give ownership of the group up to somebody else. Like it's being reborn and rebirthed. I think the problem is when someone decides this is the format, this is the structure, this is what we do, and they hold the death grip on it. And this happens like even uh, one of my friends who goes to church here in New York was saying like a pastor was just holding this death grip on this church and the church really need to grow and evolve and have new energy and have new spirit. And the best way to do that is like to let leadership rotate, let things change, like let the structures change and kind of allow for these, I think, radical changes to happen every once in a while when you feel like something is static. So I feel like quite strongly that it's really important to like check in and and possibly like kind of blow things up every once in a while and have like a radical moment of being like, is this still serving us? Um, the worst thing I think is really just doing something because you feel like you can't stop, even if it's not bringing value to you or anyone else. So I think these sorts of like check-ins are really important. And in the book, one thing we, we recommend is making sure if you have a leader type community, like chapter community that you schedule almost like a manager with your employees, check-ins with those people, but you just get a moment to be like, yo, how do you feel about this? Should we keep doing this? Do you want to keep doing this? But like allow for that turnover and rebirth of, of groups. I agree with that. Um, I think it's really important to, as you start to grow your community and you have different roles within your community, it's really important to outline the expectation of that role and what the term length is, right? And um, how people continue to transition in and out of the community. So, you know, what's one of the first things um, that I worked on when I first joined Dorm Room Fund is Bailey talked about how important it is to onboard people and make sure that they feel welcome within your community. And I think it's also just as important to kind of offboard people well and transition 
transition people sort of seamlessly out of the community or into a different role, right? So one thing that didn't exist really at Dorm Room Fund when I first joined is there was no offboarding. Once a student graduated from university, you know, um, it wasn't clear who was now in charge of working with the companies that they had invested in or maintaining the relationships that they had built on campus and, um, you know, who was now responsible for sort of carrying that torch forward. So the very first thing there is we carved out a new role, which is a dorm room fund alumni. So you transition from being an active student partner the minute that you graduate to becoming an alumni and all of your companies are transitioned and all of the relationships that you have are transitioned. And then it gives us people sort of this way of um, also saying like, you know, my time with this community uh, has now transitioned to a different place and I still want to be involved, but it's no longer 20 hours a week every single week, right? I can now participate two hours a month and be able to mentor this new generation of leaders and help support them in the type of movement and community that they want to build. Uh, Bailey, are there, you mentioned chapter-based communities. Are there different shorthand frameworks for the different ways in which communities evolve or, or the way that you classify them? Yeah. I think I often think about chapter-based communities as things that meet regularly physically. And I think this could be like a meetup as well. So, you know, Duolingo has 2000 meetups happening every single month and Twitch has like tons of meetups happening, but there's sort of like a, you join a group near you. And I think in digital spaces, the geographic component is not quite as relevant and (laughs) it can be blown apart. Sometimes it makes sense to be in a group near you. Sometimes it makes sense to be uh, connected to a group based on an interest. And there are like different models of community building, like snowflake models and all these different things. But I think physically, I'm, I'm really curious about the ability to build something that is very local, but has power and potency because you thread it across the country. Um, And I think there's sort of a new age for being able to do that. There's some like traditional historic chapter-based organizations that like we, one, one that's not that old that we have in our book is the Surfrider Foundation, which is sort of like the Sierra Club, but it's focused on protecting the beaches and oceans and also just like clean water. And they started in Malibu, California, and were just protecting that beach. And then people asked them up and down the coastline of California to come help them with different legal fights. And eventually they're like, you know what? We can't do this all ourselves. We just need to teach other people how to do this work. And they say that was a changing point for the whole organization. They have hundreds of chapters now, and they are responsible for plastic bag ban in California and I think 11 other states now. And so they're able to do local to national impact. And the sense of being a part of something is just so much more powerful when you know you're not only working alone in your own space, you have this like network across. And so I'm, I'm just generally in terms of technology, really interested in technology that is used to actually affect our real world, our lives, like the way we're living every day, instead of sucking us up into like a virtual parallel universe. And so I think I get really excited with regards to community building about how you can bridge the local to the national because of the tools we have available us today to share resources, to share communication, to share stories. So I think about it like that, but there are other people who are experts that have kind of broken down different types of community models. And for me, those never quite stuck and I I don't go back and reference them really regularly, but it might be something that I don't know, Ray, you're nodding. You may you may know more about these uh these models than me. 
No, I was thinking a little bit more about kind of the the startup parallels in a way. Um, mm. And that might be an interesting point to touch on, Eric. And I think the way that I think about it is, um, you know, it's sort of just like how the role of a CEO um, evolves as a startup starts to grow. Um, it's really important, I think, to think about how the role of a community evolves and as sort of a leader in the community, what your role is, right? So um, in the beginning, you know, just like when you're starting a company, um, you are kind of in the trend right? You are figuring it out with the people who are showing up, you know, what it is that people want to talk about and why they want to talk about it and how to build a repeatable format where they come can come together and gather and you're showing up at every single meeting and, you know, helping organize and bring snacks and drinks and all of that and really in the trenches with them. But then I think, you know, um, as uh, the demand for your community starts to grow, um, you're no longer uh, in charge of setting up that, you know, one-time event or, or going to that offering. But then your role really becomes about um, finding more great leaders, right? And how do you train and cultivate these leaders to, to bring in more people to the community? And your job becomes like any great CEO, it's really about hiring. But in this case, it's about selecting and training and building playbooks so that your different chapter heads now can start to kind of... Um, execute uh, in the right way that really goes back to your mission and your brand and kind of radiates that message further. Um, and then, you know, once your community has grown to, to millions of people, then the most effective thing that you can do as a leader is to really kind of shine the spotlight and highlight the individual people who are leading within your community, help them get a platform to be able to share that story and share what they're doing broadly with all of the other members. So I think it is important important to keep in mind that a community isn't static, but it's dynamic and it's continuing evolving and that there's different sort of phases and waves as you go through being a community leader. Totally. I want to ask a question that's sort of at the core of the the tensions, trade-offs and opportunities as we think about building communities and building big businesses with communities. So so one angle of question could be sort of the difference for you, Ray, between building community at dorm room fund and first round versus, versus the grand where one is sort of bolted on or, or somewhat secondary to business model and, and grand is more primary, although actually it could be secondary to this sort of database of wisdom that you're, you know, you're accumulating. I'm not sure how, how you think about making the grand venture scalable uh, because that, that's what you're doing. And not just you, there's a whole host of sort of these membership based, you know, community businesses that are trying to be, you know, VC, VC backable and, and venture scale uh, outcomes. How, how do you, how do you think about that, right? Yeah, so I think about um, what is the explicit goal, business goal for your community, right? So I think there's a couple of different ways to think about this here. One example of a business goal that you often hear is community as marketing. So we think our community can become our most effective sort of evangelize, uh, evangelist in terms of how our product is used. So I think one really great example of that is how um, Notion is leveraging their community of people who love Notion and have created all of these amazing templates using Notion and databases and now kind of living their entire, you know, online software life on Notion, right? So they kind of um, collected all of that, showcased it beautifully on Notion. Um, You know, they have these local meetups now where active Notion users are teaching other Notion users how to better use the tool. And that's a really great example of community as marketing. The other example of community as your product, right? So um, Notion community is not their product. Uh, Their product is the software itself, but 
the community is just responsible for marketing it, right? Community as your product, I think, um, you know, uh, there's different examples of that. And for the grand community is our product, right? It is core to that. It's not just about, you know, people telling other people about the grand and spreading the message. But what we are relying on is grand guides who are people who have lived through an experience sharing their stories and using that to spark a conversation amongst the group. And then the group coming together to discuss that question and everyone kind of being able to better navigate their journey through that discussion. So in that case, community is imperative to our business without, you know, all of these people coming together to have all of these conversations in real life, we wouldn't have anything because that is our entire product. So that is crucial to our bottom line. And because of that, we invest a lot more time, energy and resources to really, you know, kind of stoking our community, sparking conversation and making sure that everyone in our community is welcomed, has all of the tools and resources that they need in order to be able to have these conversations with each other. Totally. But, but to ask, to get deeper in sort of the annoying VC question, you know, uh, right, put your, put your VC hat on, you know, in the last, I don't know, have there been sort of community as product unicorns? Uh, there's been sort of meetup and sort of enabling technologies and that, and that's awesome. But you, you saw it and, and, you know, and their ability, you know, all these sort of, so house for X or, you know, how do those things get massive? Yeah. Um, so I think there are starting to um, be some venture broker backable companies in the community space. I think so far sounds is a really good example of that. Um, you know, they just raised a big seed round um, from Union Square Ventures, but they've been around for seven years, you know, and it started off very grassroots level where it was a couple of friends um, in the UK who invited bands come over to play in their living room. Right. And people started showing up for these intimate concerts and saying, hey, this is really cool. I want to bring this model to my city. And then they started to create sort of all of these local chapters like Bailey was mentioning. And more people could apply to be showcased and more people could apply to be hosts. And then they kind of grew this community of people who are all passionate about music and who all want to come together regularly to have these really unique experiences. Right. They didn't um, intend for it to be a venture backable company from the beginning but they were able to bring together tens of thousands of people for all of these transformative uh, concert experiences. And now they're taking that model and deploying it, I think, to 120 countries all around the world now. And so you're starting to see what that at scale really looks like. Right. And so you don't have data network effects, but hey, Reddit doesn't have data network effects and that's venture backable. And so these are just sort of in-person Reddits <laughs> or like in, in, you know, at the scale of Reddit, but in person, basically. And yeah. you build a description business or an ads business on top of that or? Yeah, it's in person, but it's also a seamless online offline bridge, right? So for so far sounds, you know, you can go to the concert and that's in person, but then the next day they also post the video online and you can rewatch that or share it with your friends or, you know, talk to um, the musicians there and have that conversation online, right? So it's not just purely offline versus online. And same thing with the grand is, you know, I think um, what really differentiates us in the unique experience is that these conversations happen in the real world, but after you go to a grand session, you can continue still talking about these topics with the entire grand community, continue learning about them. We have guided reflections and prompts and ways to help you centralize all of the learnings and remind you of the key insights and remind you of the people that you want to continue to talking to. So that way you're reinvesting in the community. Totally. And how do you think about the trade-offs of, like, as you think about your own scale, is it, am I going to be 
a, a subscribe to grand events or am I going to, you know, remember Glossy, you know, you start community and wedge something else, right? Or am I going to, you know, be so dedicated about the grand that I'm going to then, you know, buy merch or, or buy something else that the grand sells? How, how do you think about that? Yeah. So for us, um, again, community is our product, right? So it's really about bringing these people together um, over and over and over again for meaningful conversation. So um, that sense of identity, and I'm a person who's energized by meaningful conversations is really crucial to us. Um, That repeatable behavior is probably going to lead us to more of a membership model where we invite people to come back for conversations over and over and over again. And then from there, you know, I think it's about allowing our community to gather in even more immersive experiences. So it starts with that two-hour conversation you have with a group of people probing a certain question, but it could always, it could end up being, you know, a two-week retreat that you go on to Okinawa, Japan to study how Moais have affected the communities there and building your tribe while learning about, you know, um, uh, how the Okinawans have found community to increase their health and longevity. Yeah. Bailey, it goes to your earlier point about, uh, you know, your business model is who you are. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I want to just jump in and say, I think both of you guys have a ton more perspective on VC than I do. So I'm a little reticent to say too much, but I I see no evidence that community equates to hyper growth. And I do think there's a tension in there. I think that there relationships take time for people to build and they're quite personal nuanced things. And when you need to scale aggressively, I think there's a tension in really honoring some of the small decisions that go into making sure that there's really deep personal value for a subset of users. So I I do think that I don't I don't want to say that, you know, every venture backed company should invest in a community model. I do think what we see traditionally is businesses focus on the user experience. And in that period where they're able to do that, they do possibly solve a problem, create value for a group of people that really, really need that value. And it unlocks an outpouring of you know people willing to raise their hands and help that company go on their journey. I think there's a tension then when the throttle gets pushed down to really aggressively grow anything. And I think there are some examples so far as one. I think I, I'm really Weight Watchers is an adventure backed company, but the history of Weight Watchers to me is fascinating. They started in 1961 um, in Queens. Uh, a housewife whose husband was a bus driver like found a diet through basically like New York State that really worked for her. She hosts a meeting in her apartment with like five other, six other people. Within a few weeks, she had 40 to 60 people coming, carrying their own chairs into her apartment and eventually just started charging $2 and running a space. Within six years, they were in 35 countries. And within seven years, they went public in the 60s. And so I do think there's an opportunity, and Ray touched on this, in things where community is the product, where people getting together is the core value, which I would say for Weight Watchers, the social support is fundamentally a piece of sort of the weight loss offerings that they give to people. But I think there are other things where you may be building a platform or a tool or a technology and you have growth pressures that equate more closely to mass marketing or growth marketing tactics to reach than just sticking only with the community model. And I think when you have both of those things playing at the same time, they can affect each other. So I want to be really clear that I don't know 
you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that a community model is the only way to reach the kind of growth that you may promise to a venture capital, to a venture capital firm when you take on funding. I do think over and over again, though, we have seen it as an important seedbed for any in particular platform-based company where the vitality and aliveness of the platform affects whether or not more people are going to show up. The quality of the content on the platform is going to affect whether or not people will stay around. I think that's where a really passionate group of early users can really make a difference in whether or not you can go anywhere. Um, So yeah, I just want to make that point that this is, in my opinion, not a hyper growth tactic, but it may be the thing that just gets your fire going, period, <laughs> and something that you shouldn't minimize, especially in certain stages of growing your business or launching a new initiative. I was gonna say, I think that's a really important point. And, you know, I've seen a couple of pitches when I was investing where people would say, oh, I wanna build, you know, a community business. And for me, um, community isn't a category of business. <laughs> and I would never describe, you know, the grand like that or Weight Watchers like that. When I talk about the grand, the grand is a knowledge sharing business. That's our business and community is our product and how people come together to knowledge share, if that makes sense, right? So just like Weight Watchers, you know, it's about, it's a health and fitness business. Community is their product and the way that their social support groups come together to help people achieve that end goal. Um, So I would never classify community as a category uh, of business or an industry in a way, um, but rather think about it as a framework that you can use to help organically grow and help achieve your business goals. Uh, no, I love that. And, and, and one doesn't have to have hyper growth in order to be, you know, hyper, hyper big business, you know, Reddit, I think grew linearly for like a decade, just, you know, a decade, a decade plus, And is one of the biggest sites on, on the internet. So in closing, I want to end with two sort of questions different, but I want to get them out because I want to respect your time here. So first is, is there anything unique about measuring, you know, KPIs for, for how healthy the community is or, or um, how well the community is doing, you know, different than measuring, you know, other traditional social networks, you know, retention, uh, engagement, uh, NPS, if, if not, that's okay. I just wanted to ask, ask there. And then two, this is sort of the bigger question. You know, I've, uh, I recently read the sovereign individual, the basic thesis of that book is that the real TLDR is that in the next hundred years, we're going to turn from uh, citizens of governments to customers of governments and we, uh, governments will compete for our business, so to speak. Uh, and so if, if that happens, uh, this sort of natural community question, I'm curious, uh, you know, you're talking about local, global, are we likely to, this is sort of a human nature question too, are we likely to form, uh, you know, thousands of Israels and Singapore's and Hong Kong's based on different, you know, interest groups, uh, backgrounds, et cetera, whatever, uh, et cetera, or are we likely to form one big giant, you know, empire? And it's interesting. I mean, Reddit is an interesting example there because, you know, people do identify as a Redditor, you know, that, it, that like it is a community and yet it is also a community of sub-communities. So I'm a, I'm a Redditor and that means something, even though like, you know, 300 million people are, are on it. Um, but then it's also, I'm part of this. And so maybe there's some, some hybrid there, but I'm, I'm, I've been, you know, stewing on that question and I'm curious how you sort of community experts might think about that. Two very different questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can answer the first question first and then maybe Bailey, we can do that and then come back to the second question. Great deal. Um, so I think in terms of KPIs, one metric that's really important for us and I think is 
really important in any type of community where community is the product um, and where you are pursuing a more decentralized kind of chapter-based model is how many members can you convert to become leaders? So every single grand session that we have, um, that's led by a grand guide, right? So someone who starts the conversation by sharing their story. And in order for our business to work, we need a lots and lots and lots of grand guides to be willing to share their story to spark the conversation. So something that we ask after every single session is, would you like to be a grand guide? Or who else from this group would you like to nominate to be a grand guide? And we really track that metric. And we track how many people from each session can we uh, convert to becoming grand guides? Because if we can do that well, what that gives us then is a self-perpetuating supply and an ever-growing community. So I'd say that is one important metric to keep in mind if you are building a business where community is your product. I love that. I will say also an obvious answer, which you already said, please don't say, but um, I think retention is just huge. Communities, Ray and I both have the same part of our definition, which is groups of people who keep showing up. Just people over-index on acquiring new people. And I just want to make sure that I like hit so hard on, if you don't have something that people want to keep coming back to, you do not have a community. So like always, always start with retention. And I, I agree with what Ray said. I love the way you put it, Ray. Um, just to ground that maybe in another example, at Instagram, I was I ran the suggested user list and like picked it by hand for probably about two years. And our strategy in that was to kind of put people... When you signed up for Instagram, everyone saw the suggested user list as a new user. And so we wanted to put people up on a podium who could sort of like show people what was possible on Instagram or we, they were often people that we wanted to either grow a region or grow a vertical. So as uh, we were right when we launched Android, I did a lot of work to try to find suggested users in Brazil or suggested users in Korea so that people who signed up in those markets could see those people. And we would actually count like how many suggested users did we have in these markets or write how many people did we write about so we also would do that for fashion later on down the line and verticals we wanted to grow. So I think there's a way to also think about it, maybe not just in the sense of individual events and conversion, but say you're running a platform. I do think elevating certain types of users so the entire community can see them, especially if you want more types of users like that, is a powerful tool that you can do as sort of an organizer or an employee at HQ. And so we often thought about using our power to try to grow the number of types of people that look like X or Y and would actually have like quotas for how many people we wanted to feature that looked a certain way or had a certain interest. Um, so yeah, I think, but it's a similar thing of taking a regular user and elevating them and turning them into a leader and doing that with strategic reasons. Totally. So now that I, I've uh, strategically given you time to stall on that, that bigger question, uh, how might one of you uh, respond? Well, I would just say, I feel like as an American, I get really frustrated by everybody being like, Sweden's figured it out. Why haven't y'all figured it out? And I don't, I mean, people can push back on me, but I do think there's a ratio of people to representatives and people to resources that could be better than this arbitrary way that we've established like our current governments. Um, so in an ideal case, I think it would be awesome if we had slightly different ways of organizing 
our nations instead of sort of this like arbitrary long history. But I also think that ignores a lot of just like scars and very real stories and histories that we've, people have lived through and that people carry. Um, So I think it's a pretty complicated, pretty complicated question. I think the main thing that I wonder about is if things are getting too big to fail, that might be a silly question, but the strength of nations now in terms of like military capacity, surveillance, things like that to go way outside of the community realm of this conversation seems like extremely significant. I think my, my bigger thought in that question is, do we have the capacity to change these systems and structures? Do, you right. know, does, does people power play there? And in second, do you guys see relation, uh, sorry, nation states and religions as communities because they are what people for, have form identities around more than anything else, mm-hmm. right? I think that for me, there are people who participate in a nation or participate in a religion in a passive way. And I think we all know those kinds of people. And then there are people who are active, engaged citizens. And there are people who are active churchgoers or active in some form of a religious entity. And for me, I would call in particular the religious groups where people are actively engaged religions. But I think this is one of the tensions. I think in America, we have a problem of, you know, almost 50% of our country doesn't vote. And that to me is, you know, it's a pretty, pretty large amount of people who are passively related to the nation state in that sense. Um, So I think I would say like the people that do participate, it may be a community for them, but I think we're seeing tons of people passively associate to those ways of structuring, structuring our groups. Yeah, I would say um, for me, I think it depends on the religion. So, um, you know, I do think religions are a group of people with shared values and belief systems, right? Um, But to the point um, that we talked about earlier, what's the difference between a cult versus a community? I think oftentimes religions are organized in more of that pyramid framework. And, you know, it's either the Catholic Church and the Vatican and the Pope are at the top and everyone else kind of follows those rules. Um, That, I would say, is sort of less an example of a community community, whereas maybe something like um, uh, like the Quaker religion is more organized around Yes, group. Ray, fist bump. <laughs> yeah. Love the Quakers. More Quakers. <laughs> more Quakers. <laughs> more, uh, more collaborative. Less yes, more Quakers. Way. M-O-A-R. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah, I was just thinking too, I, I went to this anti-fascism conference in Vienna this past May. And there was a woman there from the pirate party from Iceland. And uh, it's this new form of political party that started, I actually think not in Iceland, but it spread to a couple of different countries and it's extremely internet-y. So they have these sort of like randomized constituents meetings where people show up and like get clustered into groups and talk about an issue. And there's a lot of like online discussion that happens within the members of this party and I would just like love to see more experimenting there, right? But we, for some reason, this is like this too big to fail thing. People just seem to like not experiment in these spaces, you know, or be like prohibited from doing that. But maybe we just, you know, need to talk about it more in this way and, and think about it a little bit more to push and prod at whether or not these things are actually working for us. This has been a fantastic episode. My guests have been uh, Ray Wang and uh, Bailey Richardson. For those uh, listening who want to go deeper, 
where can where can you point them for people to learn more about the Grand Ray and then Bailey to learn more about uh, the book and, and your company? Join us at thegrand.world. If you are in San Francisco Bay Area, we invite you to come out and experience a grand session for yourself. And we'll be launching soon in more regions and more markets. Groovy. Thank, I just want to say you two are smart cookies. I had a lot of fun talking to y'all. Y'all really know your stuff. Um, and if you guys want to read our book, you can find it at gettogetherbook.com. If you want to holler at us, people and company chit chat over email, you can go to peopleand.company. That's a dot company, not dot com. <laughs> uh, Bailey and Ray, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you much. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 